has nothing to do with what I'm going to tell you, but I just thought of this story, so I'm going to say it because I have a microphone and you can't stop me. Um, my friend and I were driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which is one of the worst roads in the entire country to drive on. And this van kept like getting really close to us. Oh, I'm stuck. Kept getting really close to us and then we'd back off and then we'd get really close to us and then we'd back off. So we like move over so that he can pass us. And as he passes us, I look over at him and he is reading a book while he's driving his van. And I'm like, this seems not safe, right? Like we're all concerned about distracted driving like while texting. This man was actually reading a printed book in his hands. So uh, my friend Stacy, um, she called the police and said, there's a dangerous driver on the road and we like gave them our location. I don't know if he got pulled over. Anyways, we don't want that to happen to you. So if you're going to, on your way to work, listen to First Peter, please don't read it. As Mark said, we jumped into this book last week. If you were here, I'm sure that you remember because Mark kept playing MC Hammer for you. Um, If you weren't here, you missed a good one. He kept playing um, You Can't Touch This, right? Is that how that song goes? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, So I don't have any MC Hammer to play for you, but kind of the big idea that we walked away with is that you've been, you have been called and you've been chosen to be holy. And that God has made you holy and nothing can touch that. So we don't often feel holy. I don't know, maybe you're more godly than I am, but it's rare that I wake up and I look in the mirror and I think like, I am so holy today. I don't often feel that way. I usually feel like I'm just kind of making it through the day. I'm kind of getting there. Maybe I've read my Bible and I've prayed and maybe I feel a little bit better about myself today than I did yesterday, but I rarely wake up and just feel like I'm gonna knock it out of the park. And yet because of what Jesus has done for us, Nothing can touch us and nothing can touch our holiness. We have this force field around us, like Mark was explaining, because of what Jesus has done. And so today we're going to look at from chapter two. So why does that matter? And um, I want us to start at the end of chapter one because it all kind of works together. First Peter was not actually written with chapters and verses in it. I'm sure that you know that. It was just written as a letter. And so um, sometimes the chapter markings kind of cause us to stutter a little bit over what Peter was really trying to communicate. So let's start at the end of chapter one and look at the way that this kind of all works together. Um, It's on page 950 if you've got a swamp Bible um, under your chair. Um, Otherwise, I don't know what page it's on. It's first Peter chapter one, starting in verse 23. This is what Peter says, for you have been born again Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the prophet says, people are like grass that dies away. Their beauty fades as quickly as the beauty of wildflowers. The grass withers and the flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord will last forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. You have been born again to a life that goes on forever. Now, if you have grown up in church, you've spent any kind of time around church, you know that this is true, right? We talk about eternal life. We talk, to, we talk about salvation. You know that when you die, it's not the end and we go to heaven. And, and those things become these really comfortable ideas to us. But think about the power and the weight of what is being communicated here. You have been chosen to be holy. You have been born again to a life that goes on literally forever. 
This is a huge idea. It's such a big concept. And as Peter is communicating this to the believers that are scattered all over the region, what he's doing is he's setting them up to understand, now because God has done this for you, it must then change the way that you live. Our big idea this morning is that you have been chosen, but because you've been chosen, you should be changed and you should be a change maker. The idea of being chosen, I think, is something that we can all relate to. Um, My baby sister is getting married on Friday, which I'm pretty excited about. And um, so she was chosen, um, and she also did some choosing, I suppose. She and her fiancé, Nate, chose each other, and on Friday they're going to stand up in front of all of our friends and family and communicate that to everyone, that we've chosen each other. We're making this commitment to each other in front of everyone and in front of God that we are choosing each other for the rest of our lives. It's a powerful picture. When I think about being chosen, it's maybe not quite as profound. Um, I feel like I tell you guys a lot of stories about running. I don't know why, because I'm not a great runner, but maybe it's because my embarrassing stories come from running. I ran track when I was in high school, and um, I was... I have told you some of these things before, but like I ran hurdles. Only, we only had four girls on our track team, which is why I got to do all the things that I did um, because there were only four of us. You think I'm kidding, and I'm not. My school is very small. So if you ever wanted to run a relay at our high school, I just got to be in it because you need four people to run a relay. So I've done the four by one and the four by two and the four by four and the four by eight. Um, I'm pretty bad at all of them, but I've run them. I did hurdles, um, I think just because I thought that it was really fun and my coach felt so sorry for me that I was bad at everything, that he was like, let's just let her do something that she likes. I was pretty terrible at those too. I fell often. Um, my biggest concern was I was going to knock my teeth out while I was running. And so we researched on, it must not have been the internet because I don't think we were using that too much back then, but we researched and found out that if you put teeth in milk, it keeps them alive. So if they fall out, you can take them to the dentist in milk and they can reattach them. That's important to know, I think. Okay, so I ran hurdles. I did some throwing. I threw the javelin, the discus, the shot put. I mean, like, you name it, I've pretty much done it. Not great at anything. Um, I didn't set any records. I don't think I won any medals. Um, I think that the rest of my relay team was always kind of disappointed that they were stuck with me because I'm not that fast. One time we actually, we were running a four-by-one race by ourselves. No one was running against us, so we were guaranteed the points, and we disqualified because we passed outside of the fly zone. Um, Our coach was really mad that day. Okay, so like, this is who I am as a track runner. I ran because my friends ran, and we had so much fun most of the time, but not because I was awesome. And so my last year of high school, we're having our spring sports banquet, um, which is long and awkward, I think, at all schools. And so everyone's getting these different awards. And so they bring the whole track team up front and they're passing out, you know, they, they, this person is going to states and this person's going to districts and whatever. They're going on and on about all these awards. And so they get to the track MVP and they give out the boys award. And so I think I'm standing next to my friend Amanda and we're not even paying attention because like, seriously, like really, like I'm going to get the MVP award. So we're talking about something and they make the announcement and everyone is clapping and someone elbows me and says like, they just said your name. And I'm like, for what? And uh, they said, for the MVP, you won the track MVP. And I was like, 
Is this a joke? I actually walked up to my coach and I said, are you messing with me? Because that's really embarrassing if you're like messing with me in front of all of these people. And he said, it's not a joke. Just take the award. And I was like, okay. So I like held the award. It was so confusing. And I remember talking to him. My track coach was wonderful. And I remember talking to him afterwards and saying like, Coach, I, I like, I don't know that I earned any points for us, like as a team. I don't understand why you're giving me this award. And he said, Sarah, you bring something to the team that other people don't bring. If you weren't here, our team wouldn't be able to do what they could do. And we had kind of this conversation. And so he said, because of all of these reasons, I've chosen you to be our MVP. I think it's worth it. And I walked away from that and looking back on that experience, look, I can tell you as a runner, I, I didn't really deserve that award. Some of the other runners on my team would have told you the same thing. I didn't deserve to be the track MVP that year. And yet my coach looked at me and saw something different and chose me for an honor. Some of you feel like I don't deserve to be called holy. I don't deserve to be called God's child. I don't deserve to be someone who is, is now sent into the world to be a change maker. And yet it's not because of what you deserve. It's because God is so good and he's so gracious. And he looks at you and he says, yeah, okay, maybe you're not the fastest runner. Maybe every time you run a flight of hurdles, you trip and you fall on your face and you get gravel in your knees. But I'm choosing you because I want to. You are chosen by God for a reason. Not because you deserve it, but because he wants to choose you. I think that makes it so much more powerful. I, I think it makes the picture so much more beautiful. For me to have gotten the MVP award because like, I'm the greatest track athlete that's ever existed, uh, maybe that makes sense, but it doesn't make the award beautiful. To be someone who is just kind of stumbling along, literally, and yet my coach looks at me and says, I recognize that you bring something to the table that other people can't see. I recognize a beauty in you that other people don't see. I recognize that you change our team because you're here. No one else is qualifying it that way, but I'm choosing you because I want to. That's how God chooses you, because he wants to, not because you deserve it. And so... So then what is our response? What happens from here? Now we're into chapter two. So there's several different things that are gonna go on in chapter two and we're gonna try to hit all of them. We'll see how it goes. Look at the beginning of chapter two, starting in verse one. So remember, at the end of chapter one, Peter has just said that you are now have this new life, this life that's gonna continue forever. Anyone say a lot? No, okay. Um, this life is gonna continue forever. And so then what is our response? Chapter two, verse one. So get rid of all malicious behavior and deceit. Don't just pretend to be good. Be done with hypocrisy and jealousy and backstabbing. You must crave pure spiritual milk so that you can grow into the fullness of your salvation. Cry out for this nourishment as a baby cries for milk. Now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Okay, so now that you know that you're chosen. Now that you understand that you've been given life that goes on forever, now the call is to spend time with the Lord so that you can grow and change. To desire him. And I love that phrase that Peter uses at the end. If you've really tasted the Lord's kindness, 
No one knows what a terrible sinner I am as much as I do. I'm guessing that no one knows what a terrible sinner you are as much as you do. You hear the illustration like, what if we could put all of your thoughts up on the screen right now? Who would be okay with that, right? Like everyone's mortified. Please don't, I'll leave and never come back. Because I know the depths and the darkness of my heart and of my thoughts. That even when I've got myself pretty cleaned up on the outside, I'm pretty crappy on the inside. And yet God chose me anyways and gave me this eternal life. And so, Peter says at the beginning of chapter two, so because he's done that, because he chose you even though you didn't deserve it, you've now tasted the goodness of God, his kindness to you, unmerited, his kindness to you. So now that should, it should cause you to want to change Now, Peter's going to spend the next few verses and he's going to talk about who Jesus is. It's like he's reminding the people who he's talking to that Jesus is the foundation of their faith. We're not going to take time to look at all of those verses, but basically the idea is that Jesus is the cornerstone. My brother is a mason, um, like a bricklayer, not a Freemason, but a bricklayer. And so I've learned some things about building from him, just kind of in the intellectual sense. He doesn't help let me help him build anything, but I understand this idea of a foundation that when your foundation is bad, the building can't stand. And so Peter is telling them, look, Jesus is the foundation that everything else is built on. Jesus is the rock. And what Peter also says in chapter two is not everybody got that. When Jesus lived on earth, man, the religious people were not fans of him. They didn't like the way that Jesus lived and they didn't like some of the things that Jesus said. And so they stumbled over him is how it's described in scripture. But Peter says, you understand as his followers, you understand that he's the foundation that we're built on. And so he then begins to build this analogy that each of you, because you are chosen, are now living stones in this building that is rooted on Jesus. You are living stones in a building whose foundation is Christ. This picture of living stones, he then moves on to describe us with some other vocabulary. And that's where I want to go now in verse 9. We've looked at this before um, in talking about what does it mean for us to connect to each other as people. But look at chapter two, starting in verse nine. Did I say four? I mean nine. You are not like that. So he's referring to people who misunderstood who Jesus was, who were stumbling over him as the cornerstone. You are not like that for you are a chosen people. There's that idea again, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus wanted to. You are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests God's holy nation, his very own possession. This is so that you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you received none of God's mercy, now you have received his mercy. It's, it's this continued picture. And as I think about it, and as I think about what Peter is doing here, it's like these... Um, just kind of like the rocks are beginning to roll and and he's picking up steam and he's saying, okay, this is who you used to be and you didn't deserve God's grace and you didn't deserve his goodness, but he chose you and he gave you eternal life. Now, because of that, you should want to be different. And so then he returns to this idea. Let me tell you why you should want to be different. 
Because you were chosen, you were made God's people. And as if to underline that point, he says, you used to not be a people. Like you had no identity is what he's saying. But now you're God's people. You used to have not received any mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. Sometimes we read these verses, I'll speak for myself, sometimes I read these verses and I begin to feel kind of like, that's right, that's right. Like I used to not be a people, but now I am. I'm one of God's people. I'm awesome. I'm part of the family. Things are good. And I miss out on what he has called me to do. You were chosen not only to be changed, but to be change makers. And I have started to become very challenged about this, particularly in regards to these verses. Because if you look at the next verses, I think my understanding of these has been wrong for a long time. Um, Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, you are foreigners and aliens here. So I warn you to keep away from evil desires because they fight against your very souls. Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. I've latched onto this idea in the past of being foreigners or aliens, or your version may say strangers and aliens or temporary residents. Uh, This kind of picture of we don't really belong here, we're just passing through. And as I've kind of connected to that idea, here's what's happened to me. It wasn't intentional, I don't think. It just kind of happened accidentally. And it's just been in the last few months that the Holy Spirit has kind of like punched me in the face a little bit. Not literally. um, But punched me in the face a little bit and said, Sarah, you're missing it. Because as as I think about that picture, okay, I'm an alien, I'm an exile, I'm a temporary resident, I'm a foreigner here. This place is not my home. And so what I've begun to do, now some of that is a biblical idea, but what that has caused me to do, again, subconsciously, I think, is to distance myself from the world. This place is not my home. And so it's easy for me to say, well then, I mean, I know God has left me here to do some good things, but ultimately, the world's going to burn, right? Ultimately, God comes back at the end and destroys it and recreates it. And so ultimately, this place is not where I belong. So I don't really need to invest. I don't really need to care. I don't really need to do the best work that I can do here because this place is not my home. Um, It's like, I'm sure none of you are like this, But when you go to visit someone else, um, sometimes actually I do this when I go home to visit my parents because I don't live at my parents' house anymore. And so it's really easy, like uh, I eat dinner and then I just put the dish in the sink or leave it set on the table because like, it's not my house. Somebody else will clean it up, right? Now at my house, I want everything clean and orderly and taken care of. When I stay in a hotel, after I wake up in the morning, I don't make the bed. I, like, unmake it even more, right? Because, like, it's not my problem. Somebody else is going to do it. I, like, intentionally make a mess because I don't have to care. I think that that is this idea that started to creep into the way that I interact with the world. Both physically and spiritually. That this idea of you're a foreigner, you're an alien, this isn't your permanent home, has caused me to go... 
well, if this isn't my home, then I don't have to take care of it. If this isn't my home, then the way that I do my work, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't really matter. Because someday I'll be with Jesus. If this place isn't really my home, then why do I care about the environment? Because someday I'll be in heaven, streets of gold, who cares about the trees? If this place isn't really my home, then I care about you as people, but ultimately I'll care about you more when we're in heaven together. It has caused me to kind of, to take a step back, to put this like chasm in between me and everything else that's going on and to think, I'm just a visitor here, so why does it really matter? I'm missing it. I'm missing the point. That's not what Peter is saying. What Peter is talking about here is he says, look, the reason that what you desire and what the world desires are two different things are because ultimately you find yourself connected to a citizenship in heaven. Because God has chosen you, he's changing you from the inside out. It means that I don't choose my values based on the same thing that the world chooses its values on. But it does not free me to disconnect and disengage. In fact, the way that Peter talks about it is the exact opposite. This picture of being a priest, I I think that we've lost it because we don't have priests. That's not something that we do as Protestants, evangelicals. We don't typically interact with people who are priests. But the role of a priest was to be the intercessor between people and God. That's what you are, follower of Jesus. That's what you are. Now, how can I be an intercessor if I'm disconnected? How can I intercess between the world and God if I'm going, well, I'm just an alien, just staying in the hotel room. Someone else is going to clean it up. If I'm really going to intercess, then I have to give a crap about what's going on. If I'm really going to intercess for the people around me, if I'm going to be the go-between between God and the world, then I have to care. I have to care about people and their spirituality but I have to care about people and physically what's going on with them. It has to matter to me. You are a priest on behalf of God. We are a nation of priests to intercess between the world and him. In fact, he even takes this, this picture a step further than in verse 12, and he says, you should be living in a way among your unbelieving neighbors. Not up on some high holy hill, far, far away from your unbelieving neighbors. I don't want to let you get too close to me, so you screw everything up. But you should be living among them. That's not a picture of disengagement. That's a picture of being engaged. So then how? What does that mean? Practically, as we walk away from here, what does it look like for me to not live my life as some disengaged person? But as someone who has been chosen to be a change maker, how do I do that? Peter, over the next kind of chapter and a half, talks about some really specific things. He talks about authority. He talks about slavery. And then into chapter three, he talks about husbands and wives. Now, these things, obviously, they matter. They matter today. But you need to understand that culturally, these were some of the biggest issues that Peter could have been talking about. Remember that during this time period, the people who were followers of Jesus, they lived under the Roman Empire, okay? 
So um, when you think about the Roman Empire, particularly as you're thinking kind of around this time, we're talking Nero, okay? Crazy Nero who set Rome on fire and then was lighting Christians on fire and using them to light the roads. This is the authority that they live under, okay? Not like, everything's great, everything's awesome. More like, I could get lit on fire and be used as a street lamp. This is the authority that they exist under. Now, when it comes to slavery, I don't believe that in any way God condones slavery. And yet this was one of the, um, the social constructs that existed at the time. And so what Peter does in these verses is he begins to explain to the people, look, if you own slaves and you're a follower of Jesus, the way that you treat those slaves, it needs to be different than the way that everyone else is doing it. Because those people are people. They're not property, they're people. So how are you interacting with them? How are you caring for them? And if you're a slave, how are you interacting with the people who are in charge of you? He continually brings this idea back to an idea of the heart. What is your attitude in the way that you interact with the world? I think that he summarizes kind of all of these ideas really well in verses 15 to 17. So we're going to look at those quickly. 15 to 17 in chapter 2. It is God's will that your good lives should silence those who make foolish accusations against you. You are not slaves, you are free. But your freedom is not an excuse to do evil. You are free to live as God's slaves. Show respect for everyone. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God. Show respect for the king. Another translation in verse 17 um, says, Respect everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And I like that a lot. I, I love those pictures. And what I think is interesting is that Peter has taken those four things, and he's really lumped them into two ideas. We've got community, and we've got authority. Respect everyone, and love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood makes me feel like we should, like, watch Gladiator or something. I don't know, but, like, respect everyone, and love the brotherhood. So everyone refers to everyone, okay? There's not some, like, weird translation thing that happened. We're talking all people, The way that you interact with people should be different because you have been chosen and changed. Respect everyone. I don't know about you. That is a hard thing for me to do. There are some people in my day-to-day life that I do not respect because I think that they're idiots. I'm just being honest with you. And yet, because I've been chosen, not based on my merit, but because God is good, it should change the way that I look at people. Respect everyone. Look at people and recognize that they are made in the image of God. And just like I don't deserve God's grace, maybe they don't deserve God's grace, but he can give it to them if he wants. Who am I to make that judgment call? Respect everyone and then love the brotherhood. This picture that we are a family. Now, we throw around the words brother and sister today like it's no big deal, but that kind of vocabulary then It was almost illegal to refer to someone as your brother if he was not really your brother because of of issues of inheritance and property and all kinds of things that were very deeply connected to family. If you're not my brother, I can't call you my brother. And yet then Jesus, he begins to save people. And so the Christian church, they all start calling each other brothers and sisters and they're making people all kinds of mad, okay? You're not allowed to do that. This person's not really your brother. And they're like, well, yeah, he is. 
I mean, we take care of each other. What's mine is his, and what's his is mine. We're a family. This is what Peter's talking about here. Love the brotherhood. Not just in a Valentine's Day kind of way, but in a way that says, I will give up what is mine to take care of you. And that you would do the same for me because we're family. So as a change maker, you are called to impact your community. You're called to impact the people that you interact with. And it's all, you are also called to change the way that you interact with authority. Fear God, respect the king. This picture of fear God, it's something that we know, that we've heard. But do I do it often? Not the way that I should? Do I understand that ultimately God is in control of all of this? That ultimately God holds this all in his hands? Do I fear him in understanding that he is so big and so powerful that if he wanted to in an instant he could wipe it all out? But because he's good and because he's loving and because he's gracious, he doesn't. And he's patient with me. And he's kind to me. Do I have a healthy understanding of who he is? Do I treat him with the respect that he deserves as my ultimate authority? Fear God and honor the king. Now, as Americans, I think we have the hardest time here. Uh, maybe that's not true, but I think, I think that it is. Because we're free to say what we want when we want. Um, I lived in Thailand for a year. In Thailand, if you speak out against the king, um, it's like common law that if I spoke out against the king in Thailand and Jeremy heard me, he could legally put me to death um, and no one would ask any questions. Just like beat, the, beat me to death on the street and it would be fine. You don't speak against the king in Thailand. It's a good thing that that's not the law here or probably we would all be in trouble, right? Like we all have things to say about our government and about our authority. I'm not saying that they're infallible and I'm not saying that you should agree with everything that they do. But if you look at Romans 13, what we learn there is that God is the one who put each person in the place that they hold. That God is the one who established the authority that exists over us. You don't have to agree with them, but you are called to respect them. I don't want to get on a high horse, but I, this is a hard thing, I think, for us as Christians sometimes. We all have something to say about our president and about our government. You don't have to agree, but you are called to respect them. How often am I willing to speak out against my president without ever praying for him? How often am I willing to talk about how stupid I think something is without being willing to engage and make changes? You don't have to agree, but you are called to respect. So, brotherhood, we're called to be change makers. There are so many practical ways that you can do that. There are ways that you can be change makers here in our community. The YMCA, there are opportunities here to engage and to love the people of Hilliard. We're connected to the bridge, an opportunity to love homeless people. We, we have these movement groups where you have the opportunity to love other people who are part of our community. There are so many ways that you can engage and be connected here. And how can you change the way that you respect your authority? Well, you know your authority better than I do. 
I mean, we all have a president. I'm guessing that you have a boss, that there are other people, men and women who are responsible for you at different parts of your lives. How do you respect those men and women? Now this, again, it may be seem like, like Sarah, that's, this is such a trivial thing that we're talking about, you know, like, okay, so I talk bad about my boss around the water cooler. It doesn't affect anybody. Revelation 14, 13 talks about the fact that our works, our deeds, they follow us into eternity. Now that's not to scare you. But it's this idea that the good things that we've done here will be remembered for all of eternity. I was just reading this week, uh, this author said, I don't think that we'll be able to meet um, Gutenberg in, in the next life and not connect him with the printing press. Now, that seems like a trivial, trivial thing, right? The printing press. And yet that invention has changed the way that the gospel has been spread throughout the rest of, of time. That that good work that he did, just as a man doing his job, that that good work follows him into eternity. And so maybe you're not sent to be a missionary to the other side of the world. Maybe you're an insurance agent and you think like, what does this have to do with me? And know that those things that you do, they follow you into eternity. That it's not that this life doesn't matter. No, no, no. This life matters. You are building. You are building a legacy. You are building the kingdom of God here that when people, when unbelievers look at your life, like he said in verse 12, that they have to recognize that things are different. You have been chosen to be changed and to be change makers. This matters. It matters today and it matters tomorrow when you go back to work, unless you're a teacher and you don't have to go back to work for two more months and everyone's jealous. It matters in the place that you do your job in the way that you love your family in the way that you interact with your neighbors. Everything that you do matters. You're a change maker. We have to live that way. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you offer us that you offer us the opportunity to be chosen, even though we don't deserve to be chosen, that it's not based on our merit, that it's based on your goodness. God, I confess that too often I take that, that I've been chosen and I'm just so dumb, fat, and happy, just sitting in that, oh, I'm chosen, life is so good, and I forget, oh, that I've been chosen to be a change maker, that you don't call me an exile because you want me to disengage, but that you want me to be involved here, that my life here matters. It's not some, some afterthought, some sort of short nothing, whatever, someday we'll get to heaven and that's what really counts but that my life here is the foundation for that. And so Jesus, I pray that as Movement Church, you would help us to know how are you calling us to be change makers? How have you gifted us, each one individually? What opportunities have you put in our paths? What specifically are you calling each one of us to do to begin to change the world around us? Jesus, I pray that the community of Hilliard would be a different place 
because Movement Church is here. And I pray that that would be true in the way that we talk about you and talk about the gospel, but I also pray that it would be true in the way that we live our lives and do our work. That even in menial tasks that seem not to matter, that we would understand that everything that I do is building towards something. God, I pray that you would help us this week, today, tomorrow. I pray that you would help us to respect everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear you, and to honor the king. In Jesus' name, amen.